you would this morning turn with me to the 17th chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 17. It's recorded by Moses beginning in verse 1. And when Abram was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, in their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you, and thy seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt, betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man-child in your generations. He that is born in the house or brought with, bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed. He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man-child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant." And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarah, or Sarai, thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. And I will bless her, and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Here in this chapter of the book of Genesis, we find that God is going to once more confirm a promise that was given to Abraham in the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis. If you're following along the reading calendar, you've already covered this territory. Um, and reading the Bible through on an annual basis uh, is always good, number one, just to be knowledgeable of the Word of God. Uh, the Bible tells us that we're to keep His Word and hide it in our heart that we would not sin against Him. You can't hide his word and keep his word if you don't know his word. And the only way to know his word is to read his word. Uh, so you say, well, I don't always understand it. Well, that's okay. I don't understand it all either, but I still know I'm uh, obligated by the word of God to read his word. Uh, but as you read the word of God and become more and more familiar, things will jump out at you as you read through it. I've said this before, but there are certain novelists that I like to read, and there are certain novels that I've read through several times. Uh, but I've noticed this when I read a novel, especially fiction, uh, I can read it 
The first time, obviously learn a lot. The second time, I might pick up a few things I missed the first read through. Usually though, if I read it a third time, there's hardly anything that's new. I've usually pretty well uh, got it all, and it's kind of like, say, well, why would you read it again? Well, why do you watch a movie several times? I just enjoy uh, the experience of reading it. I've never found that to be the case with the Word of God, and what I mean by that, every time I read it, there's always something that I've never noticed before, something that will catch my attention that uh, has never caught my attention prior. And even if it has, it, I've done forgot it, and so it's fresh anyway, but every time there's something new in God's Word. The Lord Jesus Christ said that a faithful servant is one who brings out of his treasures both things old and new. And one thing about the Word of God is certainly a treasure. And in it, there's things that are old and familiar. But every time you read it, there'll be something that is new. In the 11th chapter of the book of Genesis, you find that Abram is introduced to us the first time as God uh, records for us uh, the generations of men. He's mentioned and. Um, his father, uh, Terah, begins to move out of the land of the Chaldees, Chaldeans, uh, the Babylonian nation it would later become. They move out of that area, and then God will call Abraham to get up and to leave his kindred and to go to a place that he would later show him. And he also lets him know in the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis that he's going to bless him. He says in verse 2, I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Notice that he says, all families. Now later he will let him know that in him all nations of the earth will be blessed. Now the interesting thing, God tells Abraham this when he's 75 years of age, and he's married to a barren woman. And they've been together, we suppose, since their youth. Uh, but for all these years, they've never had a child. And God tells him at 75, I'm going to make you a father of a multitude. I'm going to bless you. And you're going to be a father of many. And all families of the earth are going to be blessed because of you. Now, you're going to find that Abraham and Sarah, they don't always believe the promise of God. So that promise is made when Abraham is 75 years of age. At age 86, 11 years later, they uh, grow weary of God fulfilling his promise, so they decide they'll help God along. Sarah comes to uh, Abraham in the 16th chapter of the book of Genesis, and he, she tells him that uh, you take Hagar, my handmaid, which, by the way, she came up out of Egypt. They brought her forth from Egypt. And uh, you go in under her and lie with her, and you'll have a son with her. And so Ishmael is born. That's still not the child that God had promised. Later, the word of God will make clear that Isaac is the promised son. And that becomes very important. Some of the things that we read in the 17th chapter of the book of Genesis are foundational uh, to our redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as you read the Old Testament, and some of these things seem to be uh, individual stories that don't connect, just keep reading. You'll find uh, how that may be a very, very uh, central point. Uh, to all the word of God. As you look at the doctrine of circumcision in the, both the Old and New Testament, you will find that it is all over God's word. Now you'll find that the physical act, though, is actually pointing to something that's far deeper uh, and far more meaningful to the child of God than simply a physical act. But anyway, here in the 17th chapter, uh, you'll find that God is going to come to Abraham or Abram still and say, 
The child that you have, Ishmael, that's not the promised child. What you and Sarah contrived together is not what I intended. And you'll even find that uh, uh, Hagar, she uh, is despised by Sarah. And so uh, begins to flee away. And so an angel of the Lord comes to her and encourages her and strengthens her. And then later, even when Isaac is born, you'll find that Ishmael is despised in Sarah's eyes, and she wants that child to go away uh, and not be heir with her son. And so uh, Abraham complies and drives her forth, and Hagar, very discouraged, the Lord comes to her and lets her know that he would take care of her and bless her, and also her son Ishmael. And kings, uh, 12 princes, he says, would come forth from him. But anyway... In the 17th chapter of the book of Genesis, Abraham is at a point in his earthly journey that he is content with Ishmael being his heir. In fact, I didn't read this part, but later in the book of Genesis 17, after God lets him know that his name is Abraham, that also his wife is named Sarah, and that from her, meaning of her, he will have a son. Abraham laughs. Uh, Abraham can't believe it. Now, Sarah later laughs as well, and God condemns her for laughing. Now, we don't find that God necessarily condemns Abraham in his laughter, but it's understandable that both would laugh. I mean, here he is 99, his wife is 89, and he doesn't conceive how it's possible at all that this should come to pass. And so it says in verse 17, Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old and shall Sarah that is 90 years old bear? And notice what he says to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. You remember later in the 22nd chapter of the book of Genesis, you've probably already read this as well, that God tells Abraham, he says, you take thy son Thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest. Notice how God refers to Isaac. He says, you take your son, thine only son, whom thou lovest, and you take him to a mountain which I will show thee. Now, God was often directing Abraham to go places that God would show him along the journey, which indicates to you and me that we're to be individuals that walk by faith and not by sight. And so what Abraham is doing here in this chapter, and he would do throughout his life, and he was a man that's frail just like you and I, and he wasn't always faithful in all things, but he was a man primarily that was a man of faith. He was a man that believed God. Uh, the Bible tells us in the fourth chapter of um, the book of Romans about Abraham in the birth of Isaac. He says, who against hope believed in hope. What does that phrase mean? It means Resting in hope, his hope was made to revive even further, and he trusted God. He knew that God was able. He counted God able. Uh, the Bible lets us know that he didn't just sort of believe, but he firmly believed that God was able to do that which he had promised. So anyway, he wants Ishmael. He says, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. I'm satisfied where I'm at. I'm 99, Sarah's 89, and we're never going to have a child. I have Ishmael here. That's satisfactory to me. You just bless him. And God says, no, that's not where the blessing shall lie. The blessing shall live in a child, and you're going to call his name Isaac. What does Isaac mean? It means laughter. Here, uh, Abram has just laughed. Sarah will later laugh, but their laughter at the promise of God is going to change. It's going to change from unbelief to great joy. Isaac is going to bring an abundance of joy to the life of Abraham and Sarah. 
Now, as you've read in the Bible up to chapter 12 and you read about various individuals, obviously Adam, uh, the Lord dealt with him, uh, created him as we know, uh, was blessed to live in paradise. Uh, then the next probably outstanding character or individual we see in the word of God is Noah, who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then you move forward, uh, that's in chapter 6, and you move forward to chapter 12, and now Abraham is going to become a very primary individual throughout the Word of God, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New. How is God often referred to? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. These three men are going to be identified many times throughout the Word of God. Even the Lord Jesus Christ talking uh, to Gentiles uh, says that uh, we would come and sit in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, here he even defends himself as being the God of the living. How? By saying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's the name that God has. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and he says, I'm the God of the living, not the God of the dead. What does that mean? That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still living when the Lord Jesus Christ was on the earth. They just weren't on the earth. They were living with him in heaven. And so that's how God has often been defined from Genesis 12 going forward as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because it's with Abraham that God makes a special covenant a special promise now what it is really is the revealing of a promise that God made with himself before the world ever began and that's the everlasting covenant uh, the covenant that embraces you and me in the doctrine of redemption and in the reality of redemption and that is that God before the world began uh, knew us as we saw last week and chose us in the Lord Jesus Christ and then Jesus in due time uh, being the seed of Isaac uh, came into this world uh, the promised one, the Messiah the anointed one of God and redeemed us from all of our iniquity and all our sins and then of course the Holy Spirit then uh, makes the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ applicable in our lives by regenerating us which we'll look at here in a few moments God willing through the doctrine of circumcision and then you and I are alive in the Lord Jesus and preserved in him until the second coming that's the promise that God is really alluding to here in Genesis chapter 17 but let's start back at verse 1 and uh, this might be a two-week sermon we'll see <laughs> When Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, this is important, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. This is the first time that God refers to himself as almighty God. I am the almighty God. Uh, the Hebrew of that is El Shaddai. What does it mean? There's several definitions. Hebrew scholars disagree. I find every one of their definitions to be very good, and I just like to combine them all because I think they all capture the essence of the Almighty God. So notice how God presents himself to Abram. He says, I am the Almighty God. Why is he saying that right now? To convince Abram that what he's going to further promise in this chapter, he has the ability to bring it to, to pass. So what does Almighty God mean? What is the definition of Almighty there? What does it mean, El Shaddai? It means God who is sufficient. And when I say the sufficiency of God, I don't mean sufficient like I mean. When I say that's sufficient, that just means it barely passes. But with God, when something's sufficient, that means it's exceeding well done. And so when God says, I am the sufficient God, that means I am the one who is capable to do that which I have promised that I will do. 
It also means to shed or to pour out. So what does that mean? He says, I am the God who pours out blessings. I, I like that definition as well. What's the other one? It means, El Shaddai can mean in some Hebrew interpretations, the chest or the breast. Well, what does that intimate? The God of strength, but also the God of tender care. And so uh, Abraham certainly needed to know that, did he not? Uh, in chapter 15, he says, I am uh, thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. But now it lets him know, I am your strength, but I'm also the one who is going to nurture you and take care of you and take care of the promises that I make to you. Another definition is all-powerful or the God who displays power. And there's no doubting if you read the Word of God and believe it that He's the Almighty who displays His power abundantly. Pharaoh saw it, did he not? What did God tell Moses? He says, I will bring the children of Israel how? with a high hand. What does that mean? I am going to display my strength, my ability, my capability, my sufficiency. Pharaoh shall see it. And so shall the children of Israel. And the last definition is the one who has his hand on all, meaning on all things. Now, I want to be careful with that definition. Understand, I do believe the word of God teaches that God is sovereign over all things, over everything that is in this universe, uh, everything that's created. It's under his dominion. It's under his control. It's under his authority. That does not intimate, that does not mean that he causes everything that his creatures do. And it doesn't mean that just because something happens that God is satisfied or happy with it. But it does let us know that no matter what transpires in this world, God is the superintendent. He is the one who is sovereign over all things. Abraham needed to know that as well, did he not? That God, who has just made this promise to a 99-year-old man, he needed to know that God was sufficient, that God would pour out blessings, that God would be his strength, and God would take care of him, and God would show him his power, and God would have his hand upon his life and all things concerning him. This man needed to know those things, and so do you and I. And so when God introduces himself in the 17th chapter of the book of Genesis as I am the Almighty God, uh, for the first time he's declaring himself in a more powerful way than what mankind has known. And as you read the book of Genesis and move into Exodus and Leviticus and uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy and, and you continue on all throughout the uh, Word of God till you finally read the book of Revelation, one of the things you're going to see is that the Word of God uh, continues to self-reveal things about God that uh, earlier generations did not know. You and I, excuse me, are blessed to see things that uh, uh, men like Abraham were not blessed to see. Uh, we know things that men in the Old Testament did not know, but as time progressed, even in Old Testament days, more and more was revealed uh, to their knowledge. We hear, though, God reveals something very important. He says, I am the Almighty God. I'm all sufficient. I'll pour out blessings. I am your strength and I'll take good care and I'll show you my power and I'll have my hand upon your life and all things that ever will affect you. So he says, when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the almighty God who walked before me and be thou perfect. He says, I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram, and this sounds a lot like chapter 12. It says, Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee 
And thou shalt be a father of many nations. Then he says in verse 5, Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. God in the word of God is occasionally in the business of changing the names of men. This is the first time we see him do it, but it won't be the last. Abraham will have a grandson whose name is Jacob, which means the supplanter, the deceiver. But you're going to find there comes a day that God tells him that his name should be no more called Jacob, but Israel, for a prince hast thou power with God and men, and has prevailed. And so Jacob will have his name changed from the supplanter to the prince of God who prevails with God and men. What a wonderful name change that was. I go to the New Testament, the first chapter of the Gospel of John, and there's a man by the name of Simon. The Lord tells him, though his name shall be called Cephas or Peter, meaning a stone. Uh, what does Simon mean? Well, it's a form of the name Simeon, which we also see in the Word of God, which means thou shalt hear. That's a good name as well. But uh, a stone, that's what he said. You're going to be a stabilizing force among the church of the living God. And Peter lived up to that name on the day of Pentecost and going forward. Now, that doesn't mean that Peter was a perfect man. We see his mistakes. That doesn't mean that Jacob, once his name was changed, never did anything wrong again. It just lets us know that God changed their name to indicate who it was they were supposed to be in his service. Jacob, again, his name is called Israel, a prince of God who has power with God and men and has prevailed. Okay, so what does Abram mean? Abram means the exalted father or father of many. What does Abraham mean? Father of many nations. Now, later in verses 15 and 16, where we read, Sarai's name shall be changed to Sarah. It's a very slight difference. What does Sarai mean? It means my princess, meaning Abraham's princess. What does Sarah mean? Princess in general or princess of many nations. So what God is doing in the name change of both Abram and Sarai is stating to them and to the world that they shall be the ones who from them descend not just a large family, but many nations. Even kings, he says, will come from thee. He'll go on and let him know. He says, I will make thee exceeding fruitful. I will make nations of thee. Kings shall come out of thee. He says of Sarah, I will bless her. I will give thee a son of her from her. She shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. So this name change, though, would also be somewhat embarrassing for both of these two. So Abram means exalted father or the father of many. But he's only the father of one. And that through a concubine. Uh, so he's the father of one, Ishmael. And yet his name, Abram, means the father of many. And so he's walking around with a name that people could ridicule him with. And so now God comes to him and says, I'm the almighty God. And your name is now going to be Abraham. He knows what the name means. It means the father of many nations. Now people might ridicule him even more. He's got to walk around with this name that right now no one can see the results of God's promise. But this man still has to walk forth in his life bearing the name that he will be the father, not just of a multitude, but a father of many nations. And as you read the word of God, what happens? Exactly what God promised to him. Abraham would become the father of many nations. The Bible lets us know in Revelation chapter 5 
that God has a people out of every kindred, tongue, nation, and people. You know what they are? They're spiritually the descendants of Abraham through his son Isaac. So what happened? He became the father of many nations. So Sarai, uh, that name wasn't embarrassing at all. It means Abraham's princess. That's a good way to refer to a spouse. Uh, uh, but now God says, nah, that's not what we're going to call her anymore. We're going to give her the name Sarah, and she's going to walk around with a name that means that she's going to be the father, or the princess of many nations as well. So they're going to walk together, hand in hand, with names that bear the promise of God. That's a good thing, but obviously at this moment, they can't see the reality, and they can't see how this is going to unfold. You know the, um, you know, the phrase, what's in a name? As I thought about this this week, uh, some of you remember Johnny Cash singing a song about a boy named Sue. <laughs> uh, obviously, that name was something to him, not in a good way. Uh, but there's a lot in a name. And especially in Bible times, names were given that indicated the hopes of the family of what that child would become. Names were very significant. A lot of times we choose names because they sound good. Uh, they refer to somebody we care a lot about in the family or somebody that's uh, been important in our lives. And nothing wrong with that. But in Bible times, names were very strategic. They were very important. So Abraham now being given this name, it's a great blessing. But at the same time, with that blessing will come ridicule. Some are going to say, wait a minute, he, he has one son and I'm to believe that he's going to be the father of many nations, that's exactly what God has said. Now then we move forward to verse 10, and there's a lot of ground we won't cover, but God says to him, Thou shalt keep my covenant, you and your seed after thee in their generations. He says, This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. And remember, God has already let him know that I'm going to make you exceedingly fruitful. I'm going to make nations of you and kings shall come out of thee. So God has established. That's the promise. The purpose of the promise, of course, is that from Abraham, the Messiah would come. And in the Messiah, obviously all nations of the earth would be blessed. But God is going to now require of Abraham a token to be in his flesh. As he would say in verse uh, 13, he says, And my covenant shall be in your flesh. For an everlasting covenant. So he tells him, this is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. And ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. Verse 12 is also very important. And he that is eight days old. So going forward after this. Now, Abraham's going to be circumcised at the age of 99. Ishmael at about the age of 13. Uh, the household of Abraham, whatever ages they were. Isaac, though, he is going to be circumcised when he's eight days old. And every man child that was to be born in the house of Abraham, and later among the Jewish people, throughout all the generations, on the eighth day, they were to be circumcised. Why did God pick the eighth day? He didn't pick seven, which is the number of completion. Uh, he didn't pick 12, which is the number of government. 
But what is the number eight in the word of God? It often refers to new beginnings. And circumcision is really pointing to the fact that we're born again of the spirit of God. And the Bible makes clear that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. He says, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so Isaac, being the first one born after the promise is given, and also the requirement is uh, conferred upon Abraham, at eight days of age, it's going to show a new beginning. And that's exactly what happens for every child of God when we're circumcised in our heart. Uh, there's a new beginning that takes place. Uh, now we're a new creature in the Lord Jesus Christ. All things, what means, obviously not every single thing. There's some things that are still holding on. Uh, from the, He says, but all things become new. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. All things there has to be taken into consideration and rightly divided. Obviously, all things pertaining to God. <laughs> That's new to the child of God after they're born of the Spirit of God. Sadly, we're still dealing with the carnal nature. So why is it, though, that God chose it? He says, number one, this shall be in your flesh. My covenant shall be in your flesh. What does circumcision mean? What's the word? You break it down, it means a circle cutting. It also means a cutting away. It indicates that there was defilement in the flesh that must be taken away to enjoy God's promise. What's the ultimate promise of God that you and I are going to be with him? But to be with him, there's going to have to be a change. Something's got to be taken away. You and I can't be with God as we are now. Something is going to have to occur. Now, you and I who have been born of the Spirit of God, we can die and immediately our soul and spirit can be with God. Why? Because there's already been a circumcision of our heart. And so our heart and soul has already been made ready to inhabit heaven. It's already ready to dwell with God in glory. But for your flesh and my flesh, which is also part of our redeemed uh, person, there's going to have to be a change occur. There's going to have to be something cut away and something altered, something changed. Uh, in fact, altogether changed. That's why he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse uh, 20, Who shall, speaking of Jesus, change our vile body that it may be fashioned like the glorious body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this custom, in this order that God gave that the male child be circumcised and in his flesh he would bear the covenant of God, the promise of God, it indicates uh, that, and it's showing them at all times that there's something defiled in man that must be cut away, that must be removed, that must be taken away uh, for that child or that individual to enjoy the promise of God. In fact, he says in verse 14, the uncircumcised man child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, what happens? That soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. I tell you, a child of God who's not born of the Spirit of God, the Bible says, is just like the wicked of this world. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we were by nature the children of wrath even as others. Okay, so God tells him, this is what you're supposed to do. There's to be a circle cutting in the flesh, a, a cutting away. This isn't the first token that God gives. In the ninth chapter of the book of Genesis, after the flood, and they come forth from the ark, what does God do? God said, I will set my bow 
in the sky. Now he says, when you look upon it, but then he only says, and when I see it, we remember my covenant. Now when you look at a rainbow, you see an arch. I've seen photographs from the air uh, where airplane pilots have taken pictures of rainbow, very different view from God's perspective. Because it's not just a partial bow, it's not just an arch, it's a full circle. What does that indicate? That the promise that God made to Noah and to all flesh can never be broken. It's a circle, just like the ring that you wear when you're married. What's that indicating? It's saying that my love and my commitment to my spouse will go on until I draw my last breath or she draws her last breath. It's a promise all the way to death. Now, thankfully, the promise of God goes beyond death. And so in uh, Genesis chapter 9, God says, I set my bow here, this uh, circular, beautiful thing that sadly in our culture today, wicked people have taken that image and corrupted it. And for those who are aware, you know what I'm talking about. And it's a sad thing that something that God uh, gave to Noah and to all flesh as a remembrance of his promise, never destroy the earth again by flood. Now has been taken by immoral, ungodly, filthy people. And that's their symbol as they live in this world. Now God's going to give a second token of a covenant. And it's going to also include a circle. Why a circle? Once again, indicating God's eternal promise. That what God promises will never, ever be broken. So he says that this covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant why because this outward action was intended to display an inward faith or confidence in the promise of God God didn't give this capriciously God didn't say just do this for what no it was to be a constant reminder uh, that God had made it a, a promise and this was an everlasting promise this is an eternal promise that God would be their God and they would be his people. And so this promise is very important. So these that would do this in their flesh weren't doing so to harm themselves, to uh, be vulgar, anything of that nature. They were indicating that they believed the promise of God. But you know what's happened by the time of the Lord Jesus Christ? Like many other things, they've corrupted that promise, and we find, especially by the Acts of the Apostles, Acts chapter 15, what happens? Paul comes back to Antioch after his first journey to preach the gospel across the world. And when he gets back to Antioch, he finds out that there were Jewish Christians that had fallen back to Judaism. And you know what they were saying at Antioch? Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. I've always found that intriguing, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses. Problem is, is Moses didn't comply with the law of God. Abraham was told that on the eighth day, the man child is to be circumcised. If you read in Exodus chapter 4, when Moses is beginning his journey uh, from his father-in-law's land in Midian to Egypt, he hadn't been circumcised nor his children. And his wife speaks up about it and God stood in the way and would have destroyed him. But we find that he was wise and aware and he complied with the promise of God, finally, but not in the way that Abraham was commanded. But those Jewish folks in Jesus' day, they 
They vaunted, they vaunted Abraham, but not to the level they did Moses. You know, there's the occasion of Matthew, the third chapter, that um, John the Baptist says to those Pharisees, Think not to say that we have Abraham as our father, because God is able of these stones to raise children to Abraham. So, so don't claim Abraham, and that's going to automatically give you right to the gospel kingdom and the gospel dispensation and to be baptized into the kingdom of heaven. He says, Just because you're the children of Abraham, that doesn't give you the right or the authority to enter into the kingdom of God. But the children of Israel, by the days of Christ and the days of the apostles, they view, they view circumcision as the entrance into heaven. That's not what God said. He says this is a token. What's a, it's a sign. You know, when I go to Lakeland or I go to Bartow or Mulberry or Plant City or Brandon or Tampa or wherever, and I hit the outskirts of town and I see a sign that says, for instance, Plant City, population whatever it is, way too many, um, uh, when I see that sign, is that Plant City? <laughs> no, that sign is not Plant City. The sign is indicating that I have either arrived at or I'm approaching to Plant City. So a sign itself is not the actual thing. <laughs> so circumcision itself was a token, a symbol, a sign of something far greater. Uh, the circumcision itself was not what gave life. Circumcision was an indication that God had made a promise. <laughs> And that promise, of course, would be fulfilled in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Jewish people, by the days of Jesus, had so corrupted so many things that God had taught in the Old Testament that they believed, except to be circumcised, after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, when they went up to Jerusalem to consider that matter before the apostles and the elders there, remember what Peter said. He said this about the Gentiles. He says, we believe that they shall be saved even as we Peter wasn't saying we're saved by the fact we're circumcised. He says, here's how we're saved by the grace of God. He said, that's how the Gentile is saved. And that's also how the Jew is saved. In fact, in the book of Romans, the second chapter, Paul says in the 25th verse, he says, excuse me, circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. So Paul says, if you're circumcised, that profits if. There's a condition. He says, if that's what you're resting in for righteousness, he says, then you better keep the entire law. In Acts 15, they didn't say, well, you've got to be circumcised after the manner of Moses. You've got to refrain from eating uh, uh, things uh, strangled. Uh, you also have to uh, refrain from eating unclean beast. Uh, you've got to keep the Saturday Sabbath. Uh, you've got to keep the three annual feast. Uh, you've got to come in on the Day of Atonement and be present when the high priest goes in. They didn't give all that list of rules and laws. They just said, just keep this one. Uh, if you just keep the one, you're okay. Uh, but just keep the one. That's not at all what Paul says. Paul says, circumcision verily profited if thou keep the law. You've got to keep the entire law, he says. But if thou be a breaker of the law, which we all are, he says, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. He says, therefore, if the uncircumcision, meaning the Gentiles, keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? What do you mean, Paul? You're getting a little confusing to me here. He said, okay, to the Jew who trusts in keeping the law of circumcision, if you think that's going to save you, you've got to keep the entire law. He says, 
But if you break the law, you've basically become uncircumcised. He says, you're, it's as though you've known not the promises of God. You've rebelled against them all. But then he says, but by that logic, he says, if the Gentiles keep the righteousness of the law, if they do the other things contained in the law, other than circumcision, let's say they do everything else. They love, they're charitable, they're merciful, they're gracious, they're kind. They're righteous in their morality. He says, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? In other words, isn't he right with God? If he's living morally, even though he doesn't understand or know the custom or the law of circumcision? Absolutely. He says, and shall not earn circumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law. He says, that's just a testimony in your flesh that you're not doing what God has required of you. Then he says, for he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So he just let us know that the outward performances of the law among the Jewish people, that was really just for the praise of men. He says, however, if we inwardly love the Lord and we are obeying the commandments of God, he says, we're not trying to praise men, but rather we are praising a God. So he says, he's not a Jew who's one outwardly. He, said, that does, he says, you being a child of Abraham is not sufficient. He says, but the circumcision, which is an inward, it's not the one that's outward in the flesh, but the one that's in the heart and that's not a new testament concept so they were commanded to circumcise in the flesh but i can find you three occasions in the old testament where circumcision of the heart is mentioned twice that men were to do it themselves once that god would do it for them Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, he says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4 says about the same thing, that they were to circumcise the foreskin of their heart. They were not to rebel against the Lord. So what? They've done the outward things that God has commanded, but they weren't doing all the law of God. Just enough to pass muster in their own view. But I love this one. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, and the Lord, verse 6, and the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. How are you and I going to live before God? He says, the Lord thy God, he will circumcise thine heart. How's that going to happen? Paul talks about it in the book of Colossians in the second chapter. It's also spoken of in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. When God speaks about cutting out a stony heart and putting in a heart of flesh, what's the difference? Well, obviously, stone fills nothing. And he doesn't say a fleshly heart but a heart of flesh, meaning a living, feeling heart. Paul would later say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that God would write on the fleshy tables of the heart, meaning the living heart of the child of God. He would write his law there. Now, God on uh, 
Mount Sinai wrote his law out in a table of stone. Moses brought them down and broke them when he got angry at the people. So then he goes back up and this time Moses chisels out the law of God. But how does God write his laws for you and me? The Bible says that he will write his laws in our heart and in our inward parts that we may know the Lord. You will not ever know the Lord until the Lord first introduces himself to you. And the Bible describes, now it's not literal. God doesn't literally come in like a heart surgeon and open up your chest and remove a, a heart that can't feel and put one back in that doesn't. It's symbolic language. He's letting us know that as children who are not born to the Spirit of God, we're uncircumcised. Something has to be cut away. There's something that's dead, that's stony, that hates God. And for you and I to love God, God is going to have to introduce himself. And God is going to have to do something in the heart of the child of God. Uh, that then we would love him and feel after him and seek after him. Colossians chapter 2, he says in verse 10, he says, And ye are complete in him, meaning Jesus, which is the head of all principality and power in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made, notice this, without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He says, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. So Paul has just declared that you and I are complete in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the head over all principality and all power, there's no ruler above the Lord Jesus Christ is what he just said there. And you and I are complete in the Lord Jesus. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30, And of him, of God, or, uh, of him are you made a righteousness, uh, uh, excuse me, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, that it is written, let him that glorieth, glory in the Lord. When you read those four things, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, that kind of covers it, does it not? We're complete in Christ. He says, how are we complete in him? Because we are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. That's just a reference that Jesus has come and taken that which is dead away and put life in its place. So when God was talking to Abraham, time is gone, so I'm not going to be able to really get on Isaac. Maybe, like I said, it may be a two-week sermon, because uh, Isaac is important. But God told Abraham that this was the sign, this was the token, that he was to be circumcised, and all that was in his house, even those that they bought with money, and the stranger, and the one that was not, was to be cut off from the rest of the people, because they had broken God's covenant. So that's what God commands. Abraham complies. Isaac on the eighth day, he is circumcised. And then in Romans chapter 9, and we'll just briefly mention this and then we're going to have to close. Because you and I are of the descent, meaning our heritage, our lineage is through Isaac. Not naturally so, but spiritually. He says in Romans 9 verse 7 to 9, Isaac is very important. He says, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, meaning children of God. He says, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise at this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. Ishmael was not a child of Abraham by promise, but Isaac was. How did Isaac come? In a supernatural way. 
Uh, Isaac was not born in a, in a natural way. God had to supernaturally intervene in the life of Abraham and Sarah. In Romans 4, it says that uh, Abraham considered not the deadness of Sarah's womb, neither the deadness of his own body. Uh, when Sarah heard the promise, she said, Shall I have pleasure of my Lord, or shall he have? But indicating that neither one of them were no longer capable of having a child. It wasn't just her, but he was also at that point in his life incapable of fathering a child by nature. So God has to supernaturally act. Now he does it then, he'll do it also in Luke chapter 1 when Zechariah and Elizabeth who are well stricken in years, they have John the Baptist. Isaac is the promised son. It's going to take the supernatural power of God for Isaac to come into this world. God enlivens the womb of Sarah that had been barren for 90 years. He's going to revive the regenerative powers of the body of Abraham. And Isaac shall be conceived, but it takes God intervening. You know how you have life in Christ? It's by promise and God has to intervene. God had to intervene for Isaac to come and for you to be alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has to intervene. You don't have life in Christ because you believe, because you obeyed, because you had faith, because you were baptized, because you went to the right church, believed the right thing, and said the right thing. That's not how you're in Christ. You're in Him, and you're complete in Him because you have been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Meaning, the Lord Jesus Christ spoke, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins were made alive. Now listen, there is a lot that you can find as you read through the Bible in a year. That's just barely scratching the surface. And so as you read, don't just read and gloss it over. Don't just pass by. Dig into it because you will find eternal truths that will revive your heart, encourage your soul, and help you in your Christian journey until you finally are called home. May God bless you as our prayer.